The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Roughly 10 years after American essayist and thinker Ralph Waldo Emerson called for a new kind of poet, an unknown printer sent him a copy of verses that he had published. He was also the author of those verses, though he wasn't labeled as such. There was no author listed, in fact, just an engraving of a bearded young man wearing an open collar and a jaunty, wide-brimmed hat. The man in the picture and the printer were one and the same, Walt Whitman. The book was called Leaves of Grass, and its impact on American and world literature continues to this day. But its first impact, or one of its first, was on Emerson, who was excited by what he read. We'll look at Walt Whitman as a young man, as the author of these poems, with an eye toward Emerson's response to them, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you're here to join me. I'm Jack Wilson, bringing you part two in our look at Walt Whitman. Last time we looked at Emerson's essay, The Poet, published in 1844, and we looked at a pair of poets who were popular when he wrote that essay. No more of these sterile experts in meter, said Emerson. Accomplished though they may be, their work lacks that something-something that a true poet delivers. He wanted greatness. He wanted depth. He wanted big heart and big soul. The nation was large, full of wilderness and civilization both. Extremes everywhere you looked. And the experiment in democracy was new and dynamic, and it just would not do to have poets who lived in straitjackets counting out syllables. Let's continue with setting the context with... Another couple of poems. These are both from the mid-1850s, which was when Leaves of Grass was written. Again, we turn to Alfred Lord Tennyson, the poetic star of Victorian England, and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, his counterpart in America. This is what people were hearing. Tennyson, in 1854, wrote the very famous poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. You may have heard this one in school. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death, rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death, rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die, into the valley of death. Road the 600. And so it goes. I think that's enough to give you a taste of it. Into the Valley of Death, Road the 600. It's about the Crimean War, the bravery of soldiers who were following bad orders without questioning them. It's not a bad poem. In fact, you could call it a very good one on many levels. It rattles on, technically marches forward, one might say, or gallops along. Certainly all that reflects its subject nicely. And it's a little jingoistic, perhaps, a little simple in its approach. It's not exactly subtle, but its topic is not exactly a cliche either. You can even squeeze some pathos out of it. That's what's coming from England in those days. 
a very popular and well-regarded poem. In America, meanwhile, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is doing something similar. We heard the skeleton in armor last time, which is about a, a Viking skeleton. Could have taken place in Europe, had very little to do with America. He has since turned his sights onto America, but he's still in the same metrical vice as Tennyson. Instead of galloping horses, we get something closer to an Indian or Native American chant. This is an epic poem by Longfellow called The Song of Hiawatha. It came out in 1855, the same year as Leaves of Grass, and it starts like this. On the shores of Gitchigumi of the shining big sea water stood Nokomis, the old woman, pointing with her finger westward, or the water pointing westward to the purple clouds of sunset. Fiercely the red sun descending burned his way along the heavens, set the sky on fire behind him, as war parties, when retreating, burned the prairies on their war trail, and the moon, the night sun eastward, st suddenly starting from his ambush, followed fast those bloody footprints, followed in that fiery war trail, with its glare upon his features. And Nokomis, the old woman, pointing with her finger westward, spake these words to Hiawatha. Yonder dwells the great pearl feather, Megasagwan, the magician, Manito of wealth and wampum. Guarded by his fiery serpents, guarded by the black pitch water, you can see his fiery serpents, the Kenebek, the great serpents, coiling, playing in the water. You can see the black pitch water stretching far away beyond them to the purple clouds of sunset. He it was who slew my father by his wicked wiles and cunning, when he from the moon descended, when he came on earth to seek me. He, the mightiest of magicians, sends the fever from the marshes, sends the pestilential vapors, sends the poisonous exhalations, sends the white fog from the fenlands, sends disease and death among us. Take your bow, O Hiawatha, take your arrows, jasper-headed, take your war-club, Pogawagun, and your mittens, Minjakuan, and your birch canoe for sailing, and the oil of Mishinama, to, so to smear its sides that swiftly you may pass the black pitch water. Slay this merciless magician, save the people from the fever, that he breathes across the fenlands, and avenge my father's murder. Wow, you hear how that strolls along, and, and or maybe, what's the right word? Verb here, marches, drum beats, in trochaic tetrameter. No one talks like this. Of course, you can imagine Longfellow at his desk, counting out the syllables, searching for the right word that will scan just right and fit that drum-like pattern. Again, it's a job well done. And although I doubt a white poet today would travel to the shores of Gitchigumi to write an epic poem in this milieu and this voice, we can see how the metrical form reflects Longfellow's chosen subject. Imagine the drums and rhythms of a Native American tribe, as it exists in a white man's mind, anyway. A brave young Indian, or a brave young brave, who's headed out for vengeance. We can almost see how Longfellow might have thought that he was answering Emerson's call. He based this poem on some conversations he had, some things he was learning from Native Americans. And you can imagine Longfellow saying, hey, Emerson, you want a poem worthy of America? How about one that reaches back into some kind of mythic American past? 
as Homer and Virgil had done in Greece and Rome. How about this poem, which tells the story of noble warriors fighting worthy battles and so on, right here on this continent. But it was left to someone else to truly fulfill Emerson's call for a true poet. And he was an unlikely figure to do it, except was he really so unlikely? Longfellow was a descendant of several Mayflower pilgrims. His father was distinguished, a lawyer. One of his grandfathers had been an American Revolutionary War general and a member of Congress, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He himself was extremely well-educated. He learned Latin at a young age, and eventually he became a professor. He attended Bowdoin College and was a lifelong friend of Nathaniel Hawthorne's. We can do an episode on Longfellow. He was passionate about literature and believed in it as being his destiny. But let's see what Walt Whitman was doing instead. This is a good contrast. As we mentioned last time, Whitman was not nearly so well-pedigreed. He was the son of a carpenter, and he too wanted to devote his life to literature, or at least he did after he read Emerson's essay, The Poet. He was about 12 years younger than Longfellow, while Longfellow was writing poems like The Skeleton in Armor and The Song of Hiawatha. Whitman was finding work as a printer and a hack writer and a teacher. None of this was performed with the silver spoon that Longfellow had been born with, Whitman was finding that he was as much an outsider as an insider. When he taught, he was run out of town. The rumor later ran that he had been tarred and feathered. Let's take a quick break and dive into the life of Walt Whitman in the 1840s after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So where are we in the 1840s? Whitman was born in 1819. As we talked about last time, we heard how he lived in his father's shadow, his mother's bright affection, and his father's stormy shadow. 
That was the start of his life. But when he got older, in his late teens and early 20s, he set off to find his fortune. Whitman started his career, his working career, young. At 12, he worked for a political sheet called the Long Island Patriot. Type was set by hand in those days. Printing was closer to being a carpenter's trade than it is today in our world of word processing and electrons flying about. You worked with words, yes, but you also worked with ink. You worked with paper. You built the words letter by letter. You worked with your hands. It was a painstaking process, but it was satisfying too, and it was skilled. Whitman moved to the Brooklyn Star and kept working becoming what was called a journeyman printer, and indeed all of this would be helpful when Whitman eventually self-published Leaves of Grass in 1855 and put out all of its future renditions as well. He could control how it looked, what it said, the frontispiece, the covers, and so on. Even when he became too frail to carry out the final version of Leaves of Grass, he had his friend work on it. Printing was for him, quote, the craft preservative of all crafts, end quote. And it was a way to earn a living even before he was successful with his poetry. He was good at printing and editing, and he liked doing it, printmaking, as he called it. I like the making of books, he said. Sometimes I think I like that even better than writing them. But even as a young man, he had a desire to create the content as well as just put the content of other people, other writers, into print. He also tried writing editorials and fiction. He wrote some stories in these early years. We're in the early 1840s now with titles like Death in the Schoolroom and Wild Frank's Return. In 1842, he published a novel which was called Franklin Evans or The Inebriate. It was a temperance novel warning about the dangers of drinking alcohol. He was hugely embarrassed by it later in life. Rot, he called it. Damned rot. Rot of the worst sort. A critic called it, quote, inept as a temperance plea and worthless as fiction, end quote. One gets the sense that Whitman was trying to play the game, trying to write for money, aware of what was supposed to be done, but not really into it. He had a journalist's eye and uh, an efficient and effective and accomplished or professional-seeming prose style, but there's no great zeal for the project. It feels forced, especially when we compare it with Whitman's poetry, which we soon would see. He started a second temperance novel called The Madman, but seems to have given it up after writing one chapter. Here's a sign that things aren't going so well. He said in the introduction to Franklin Evans that, quote, this is not written for the critics, but for the people, end quote. You don't really put that in unless you know that it's not very good, right? There's no real need to apologize or defend yourself if you feel confident about what you're putting out. Whitman also wrote a serialized novel in 1852 called Jack Engel, which is a, a sort of Dickensian story of rags to riches set in New York City, though, rather than London. Characters are named Covert, Wigglesworth, Smythe, and Jack Engel, a la Dickens. There are boarding houses and churches. It covers the law. It covers crime. 
And interestingly, the book was lost for 160 years. It was published in 2017. I haven't read it, but apparently it's fun, rollicking, creative, twisty, and bizarre, according to the scholar who located it. Even so, I think it's safe to say that it's mostly important for us for what it tells us about Whitman's poetry. That's how critics have treated the novel Jack Engel anyway. They don't say, oh, look, here's the new David Copperfield. They say, well, here's what one of the world's great poets uh, did when he tried to write a David Copperfield. What seedlings in there do we see? What harbingers of what was to come? Sometimes prose has more transparency into themes and attitudes than poetry. Ideas that might be hidden behind symbols or abbreviated phrasings are stated in plain view and with in plain language. But also, it's just kind of nice to spend more time with someone who has an interesting way of looking at the world. A good observer who cares for the power of words. Philip Larkin's novels are a bit like that. Whitman wrote some other books after Leaves of Grass, which we'll get to when it's time for those. For now, we have to steam toward 1855 and Leaves of Grass, but let's not forget a trip that uh, Whitman took and biographers often do forget. This guy, Whitman, who spent most of his life in the New York City area with a very famous stint in Washington, D.C. as a nurse during the Civil War, being the one real departure from New York City. This man took a trip, speaking of steaming, he took a trip in his late 20s to New Orleans, where there were lots of steamboats in the ports. New Orleans, then as now, one of the most unusual American cities. If you, if you had to pick a city that was like New York, you might say Boston and Philadelphia, especially in those days. And today you'd have D.C. and Baltimore. Well, Baltimore was kind of like New York in those days, too. And if you had to pick a city that was like Cleveland, you might find Milwaukee or Chicago or Detroit. There are always some comparables, right? It seems. And, but for a handful... There just aren't. I don't know what you say about San Francisco. Is there anywhere else that's quite like it? But the hardest comparable, in my opinion, of all the American cities is New Orleans. There's nothing like it. It stands apart. And it's a place where people stand apart. And I just realized that we forgot to mention Whitman's work as a teacher in 1840, which was eight years before his trip to New Orleans. So well, let's stick with New Orleans. We'll circle back to that, the teaching gig, after we take our trip to New Orleans. Whitman was in New Orleans for three months, February to May of 1848, working as a newspaper man for the New Orleans Crescent, which was new at the time. New Orleans was even wilder than it is today. Pirates, gold hunters, thieves, and that Creole society of Spain and France mingling together and lots of riffraff from all over the world pouring in. Whitman loved the coffee. This is the best cup of coffee I've ever had, he said. He enjoyed more than that, as we will see. New Orleans had only been part of the United States for about 40 years at this point, which was the date of the Louisiana Purchase. It had been full of battles and festivals since then, and when Whitman was there, it was teeming with soldiers and theaters and gaming houses and brothels and parades. It was also the heart of the slave trade. 
if you can call such a thing, a heart, a blackened pumping thing anyway, a heartless heart. And a journalist later said, quote, every race that the world boasts is here in New Orleans and a good many races that are nowhere else, end quote. Whitman went with his 14-year-old brother, Jeff, a 2,400-mile journey from New York City by train, coach, and boat. Remember that Whitman had not really been far from New York at this point, and this was him seeing America for the first time. And as any good traveler knows, when you see another place, you also see your origins more clearly. Fish don't see water until they're on the dock, gasping and wiggling. They might see what water is before then, but they don't, or they might see water, but they don't appreciate it for what it is until that moment. If you were going to read a poem called Water by a fish, would you want one who had lived in the ocean all its life? Or would you want one who had spent at least a few seconds on land? But because this isn't the fish story of literature, we will move on. The fish story of literature was that old podcast I used to run. My lord, that thing was a total failure. I don't know what I was thinking. We didn't even make it through one episode before the angry villagers, with their torches, pounded down the door. Okay, Whitman seems to have been affected in three major ways by his time in New Orleans. First, as I mentioned, just seeing a different place and having that experience, the vastness of America, the diversity of America, all of that not only gave him a sense of America, but it told him what New York was and wasn't. New Orleans had flowered courtyards and big bar rooms and saloons. There were marketplaces where Indian and black hucksters sold stuff, calling out to him, and he bought his coffee from a large Creole mulatto woman. He wrote about all this for the Crescent. He went to the lavish opera house and the cathedral lit by candles and the festivals that were going on and people from everywhere mingling about all together. And when he came to write The Leaves of Grass, in which he catalogs a kind of urban democracy, we can think of New Orleans as being as reflective, if not more, of what he's talking about, more even so than Brooklyn and New York. I was in love with Manhattan for its energy, and its. this is me talking, Jack Wilson. I was in love with Manhattan for its energy and its diversity and its drive and its extremes. And then I went to India and saw some of its cities, and I thought, my God, this place is even more so, more teeming with life of all kinds, of nonstop onslaught of sights and smells and sounds and just humanity all together. And I wonder if Whitman felt that way, too, about New Orleans. It seems that way from his writings sometimes. Good Lord, all that Americanness I see, all the different people and workers and ups and downs and highs and lows, celebrations and pain, it's all right here in front of me in New Orleans all the time. A cosmic soup. Whitman's gumbo. Here's his quote. I used to wander a midday hour or two now and then on the crowded and bustling levees on the banks of the river, the diagonally wedged-in boats, the stevedores, the piles of cotton and other merchandise, the carts, mules, 
afforded never-ending studies and sights to me. I made acquaintances among the captains, boatmen, and other characters, and often had long talks with them, sometimes finding a real rough diamond among my chance encounters, end quote. He also had, let's just say it, he may have had a kind of sexual awakening in New Orleans. Some scholars used to believe that this was an affair he had with a Creole woman from an upper class, and it ended due to some complications, as if Walt had been run out of town one step ahead of some kind of pitchfork or shotgun. That rumor has mostly been rejected now. Whitman said late in life that he had six illegitimate children, and that comment sent biographers down a number of rabbit holes trying to figure out the who and the where and the when, but none of them have ever been identified, even after much searching. It's very possible that Whitman made this up in order to throw people off the scent of his actual life. We don't know for sure. Another idea more rooted in some drafts of his poetry, is that when he was in New Orleans, he fell in love with a man. In particular, he wrote the poem, Once I Passed Through a Populous City, which appears to be about New Orleans. And in the poem that we have, or the one that was published, it's about a woman he met in New Orleans, or a place very like it. And we know from early drafts of the poem that the inspiration was actually a male lover. We might as well go back to the story of his teaching at this point. There's some parallels here. This is another long-standing rumor that hasn't been confirmed. Whitman himself only attended school until he was 11. At 17, he started work as a teacher. He tried to develop his own methods of teaching. He liked to ask more questions of the students rather than the teaching method of the day, which was to hammer textbook lessons home through Force, forcing the students to memorize a lot of things and using heavy-handed discipline in order to try to improve and shape that memorization. Whitman respected his students, and he began to respect the role of teachers, one of the noblest positions on earth. He said he believed in secular education and was strongly in favor of abolishing all corporal punishment in the classroom. He once wrote a story, I think I mentioned it earlier, called Death in the Schoolroom, a fact. It's in parentheses, which set forth his views. He also kind of hated teaching a lot of the time. He bounced around to something like a dozen different schools. It was not really the profession for him. In 1840, he wrote a letter to a friend that said, quote, I am sick of wearing away by inches and spending the fairest portion of my little span of life here in this nest of bears, this forsaken of all God's creation, among clowns and country bumpkins, flatheads and coarse brown-faced girls, dirty, ill-favored young brats with squalling throats and crude manners and bog trotters with all the disgusting conceit of ignorance and vulgarity. It is enough to make the fountains of good will dry up in our hearts, to wither all gentle and loving dispositions when we are forced to descend and be as one among the grossest, most low-minded of the human race. Life is a dreary road at the best, and I am just at this time in one of the most stony, rough, desert, hilly, and heart-sickening parts of the journey. 
End quote. He also added, send me something funny for I'm getting to be a miserable kind of a dog. End quote. One guesses he was grading papers at the time. I think a lot of professors will know what I mean by that. It's quite a letter coming from someone who would later celebrate the common man and democracy, but I don't see that as such a contradiction. The cataloging, the observations, all of that is similar to his style. If you're happy in life, you see all this around you and you celebrate it. If you're miserable, as teachers often are after a hard day's work in a classroom with some ungrateful young minds that they're molding. If that's where you are, you catalog the same kinds of things, but with the the attitude and stance of a Travis Bickle. There's also a story that one Sunday in January of 1841, when Whitman was about 20 years old, he was publicly denounced by a minister who was preaching at a local Presbyterian church, quote, because of his behavior to the children and his goings-on, end quote. And this led to feverish reports of, quote, bloody bedding, end quote. The congregation became inflamed and went to a place where hot tar was available for mending fishing nets. They took the tar and hunted down Whitman. This is how the story goes. They took the tar and hunted down Whitman at the home of one of the victims— that's in quotes as well, a boy named Giles, and Whitman fled to a nearby home where he sought refuge in an attic. The townspeople, however, were eager to find him. They found him hiding under some mattresses. They grabbed him, plastered his hair and clothing with tar and feathers, and tried to run him out of town on a rail. But as the story goes, he was rescued by a woman named Aunt Lena, and taken to a doctor's home and nursed back to health, not appearing in public for a month. That's the story, mainly handed down through oral tradition for a few generations before it was ever put into print. Okay, so first of all, we don't know for sure that it happened. And secondly, we don't know that even if it did, if the mob was acting on anything actual or on rumors. A lot of our history and the evidence gathering from this incident came many years afterward, and it came after Whitman was well-known as a licentious and probably gay poet, so people hunting for evidence may have had that in mind, too, might have colored these recollections or the rumors that were going around and were being passed along in this town. And the people who were repeating the rumors might have had a kind of agenda in mind. Another reason to doubt this story is that the tarring and feathering allegedly happened in January of 1841. And in March of that year, Whitman wrote a letter of reference for another school teacher in that town. He was also, so why would you do that? Why would that even be something the other teacher would want if this had been such a scandal with such a such a uh, severe outcome. And Whitman was also politically active. He wrote editorials that ran in local newspapers in this town while he was teaching there. And the people who denounced him, including the minister, held strong political views counter to his. So all of this could have been invented or exaggerated. And as I said, it might not have even happened. We don't know exactly. 
But maybe it did happen, or maybe there was a kind of relationship or friendship between the young teacher and the older pupils, or maybe this was a, a friendship or a friendship plus love. Maybe all of that had kind of fed into this. This was not an easy time to be gay. And Oscar Wilde, who was sort of the poster boy for the not-easy-to-be-gay era, will later make a cameo appearance in our Whitman story. But for now, keeping this in mind, that this may have happened or may have been the rumors that were following Whitman as he made his way through the world, Maybe, let's go back to New Orleans, this would be about eight years after this alleged incident. I like to think that Whitman found the freedom in New Orleans to be more liberating for him and to help him feel better about himself and who he was. He would not be the first or the last person to have done so. But this is mainly just my hope. It's not really in the biographical evidence. You can draw it from the poems, which is not necessarily history, but does tell us something about what he was doing in New Orleans and who he was in love with, you can start to see why my podcast, The Fishstory of Literature, was such a failure. I didn't even have these crumbs to work with. It was like trying to eat water with a chopstick. Okay, in New Orleans, eat water. You ever eat water? Well, <laughs> as difficult as it may be, it's even harder with a chopstick. Trust me. In New Orleans, Whitman also witnessed the slave trade, as we've talked about. There's a distinction you see running through historical accounts between a uh, distinction drawn between slavery as an institution and slaves and slaveholding, and that's on the one hand, and the slave trade on the other. You can hold theoretical views about slavery if it's happening somewhere far away. You can take a philosophical or economic perspective. You can you can talk about the policy of it, and you can be deceived about the brutality of it or the inhumanity if you never see it. There are no actual awful facts to distort your thinking when it's far away and happening to others. And if you encounter a slave in the context of a domestic servant, your view of the actuality might also not be disturbed. There's no video footage in those days, of course, and not many photographs. The accounts might be something that you dismiss as propaganda for the other side. It's easy to be deceived when the truth is awful and inconvenient. But the slave trade, the auction block, was different. There was no denying how horrendous things were at that moment. There was no denying the starkness of what was happening. One could not avoid the looks on the faces, the shackles on the wrists and ankles, and the cries of families being torn apart. Whitman kept an advertisement from a slave auction, which is believed to be one that he took from a building in the French Quarter, close at hand for 40 years. Sometimes he hung it on his wall, other times it was in his writing papers. He said it was a reminder, and he called it a warning. His writing would reflect that, as we'll see. That came from New Orleans, too. Soon after Whitman returned, he left suddenly. We're not sure why. Soon after he returned from New Orleans to New York, he vowed that he would give up his work as an itinerant reporter and essayist and teacher. His vocation from that point forward would be poetry, in his words. 
For five years, he toiled at his craft until publishing, self-publishing, the fruits of those labors, leaves of grass. What had happened? Emerson had called for something different, and Whitman was ready. I said before that he was an unlikely candidate to be the true poet Emerson wanted, the true American poet. And I said he was unlikely, talking about his education. He only went to school until he was 11, for example. But when you think about it, it's not so unlikely. The person to break with Europe is not the one who looks to Europe for approval all of his life. It's the dude with nothing to lose. That's not a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, distinguished college graduate and professor who might from the outside look like the proper guy to assume the mantle and be America's foremost poet. But no, of course, it's not that guy. It's the guy who likes other guys dangerously, who was chased out of town at least twice for unclear reasons, who was bouncing around, who tried his hand at hack work, who lived by his wits. If you're going to deliver truths, you've got to figure a few truths out first, even if they come from life and not books, or should I say, especially if they come from life and not books. If you're going to be new, it helps if you yourself have a clean slate and a mother who speaks and writes English full of transgressions rather than a Latin education with all of that perfection, all of those syllables marching along. If you're going to go for broke, it helps if you've been broke and are broke and know what it means to be broke. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow had a pedigreed name that could sell books that would impress the Academy. Walt Whitman's name was so undistinguished he didn't even bother putting it on the cover. But Emerson wasn't looking for a poet who could sell a lot of books from a lofty perch at a university. He was looking for something else. He wasn't looking for a pedigreed purebred who could bark on command. He was looking for a mangy mutt who would howl. We'll hear more about that howl, or as Whitman might have put it, a barbaric yawp. Actually, he did put it that way. We'll hear more about it after this. Whitman began writing the poems in Leaves of Grass sometime in the late 1840s. The bulk of the first edition was written between 1850 and 1855. Twelve poems were in that first edition. He revised and added to Leaves of Grass throughout his life. And when, when we talk about what Leaves of Grass eventually became, it includes something like 389 poems. The first volume in 1855 had 12, but they were pretty long. He designed and published the work, the book himself. He set the type for at least some of the book's 95 pages. It had a 10-page preface in prose. It was untitled. The poems themselves are often untitled. 
though we know their names now. The Sleepers, I Sing the Body Electric, and of course, Song of Myself, the first poem, which we'll hear from today. There were not titles, and there was not an author name, nor was there an author bio or anything like that. In lieu of that was a picture of Whitman, an engraving that had been made from a daguerreotype that had been made of Whitman a year before. The collar of his shirt is open. He's wearing that jaunty hat. One hand is in his pocket. The other hand is on his hip. He stares forward at the reader. It's often called the carpenter portrait. What was the intention of this, and what was the effect? We can guess at both. Who cares who Walt Whitman is? He's not a long fellow. He's not one of the people whose family names are known. He's not been anointed by anyone as the prodigious student or the heir apparent. Our next great poet, he's this guy, a worker, a hard worker, an American who has something to say. He'll talk about himself and what he sees, and because he's an American, what he sees and feels are part of the nation. That's Whitman's project. All of this between a pair of green covers, cloth for about 200 copies, cheaper stuff for the other 600 or so. One. This is Song of Myself. One. I celebrate myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my ease, observing a spear of summer grass. Houses and rooms are full of perfumes. The shelves are crowded with perfumes. I breathe the fragrance myself and know it and like it. The distillation would intoxicate me also, but I shall not let it. The atmosphere is not a perfume. It has no taste of the distillation. It is odorless. It is for my mouth forever. I am in love with it. I will go to the bank by the wood and become undisguised and naked. I am mad for it to be in contact with me. 2. The smoke of my own breath. Echoes, ripples, buzzed whispers, love root, silk thread, crotch and vine, my respiration and inspiration, the beating of my heart, the passing of blood and air through my lungs, the sniff of green leaves and dry leaves and of the shore and dark-colored sea rocks and of hay in the barn, the sound of the belched words of my voice, words loosed to the eddies of the wind." A few light kisses, a few embraces, a reaching around of arms, the play of shine and shade on the trees as the supple boughs wag, the delight alone, or in the rush of the streets, or along the fields and hillsides, the feeling of health, the full noon trill, the song of me rising from bed and meeting the sun. Have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? Have you practiced so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and sun. There are millions of suns left. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor feed on the specters in books." You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. 
You shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself. 3. I have heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning or the end. There was never any more inception than there is now, nor any more youth or age than there is now, and will never be any more perfection than there is now, nor any more heaven or hell than there is now. Urge and urge and urge, always the procreant urge of the world. Out of the dimness opposite equals advance, always substance and increase, always sex, always a knit of identity, always distinction, always a breed of life. To elaborate is no avail. Learned and unlearned feel that it is so. Sure is the most certain sure. Plumb in the uprights, well entertained, braced in the beams, stout as a horse, affectionate, haughty, electrical. I in this mystery, here we stand. Clear and sweet is my soul, and clear and sweet is all that is not my soul. Lack one lacks both, and the unseen is proved by the seen, till that becomes unseen and receives proof in its turn, showing the best and dividing it from the worst. Age vexes age, knowing the perfect fitness and equanimity of things. While they discuss, I am silent and go bathe and admire myself. Welcome is every organ and attribute of me and of any man hearty and clean. Not an inch nor a particle of an inch is vile and none shall be less familiar than the rest. I am satisfied. I see, dance, laugh, sing. As the hugging and loving bedfellow sleeps at my side through the night and withdraws at the peep of the day with stealthy tread, leaving me baskets covered with white towels, swelling the house with their plenty, shall I postpone my acceptation and realization and scream at my eyes, that they turn from gazing after and down the road, and forthwith cipher and show me assent, exactly the contents of one, and exactly the contents of two, and which is ahead. Those are the first three sections of Song of Myself. There are 52 sections in the poem, one for each week of the year. You can hear the voice of a prophet, a mad prophet, or maybe not mad, but sensitive, alert, attuned to nature, shifty, attuned to... Nature, oneself, attuned to life. Someone who wants to vacuum in all thoughts and wants to be big. And small. But big. That's the best part of the Whitman-esque voice. How universe-affirming it all is. In a famous passage, he talks about this size. He says, I am large. I contain multitudes. That's coming at the end. We'll, we'll hear that when we read the final three passages. But let's just talk about this journey first. He's bringing the reader along, of course. This is a journey being taken together. The speaker leaves the creeds and the schools behind. He heads out to the woods to become undisguised and naked. What a great phrase. Guess what happens next? The poet's soul arrives and fastens itself to the poet's body, its head athwart the poet's hips. Its tongue will go all the way into the poet's bare-stripped heart where it will feel his beard and hold his feet. It's as if the soul is occupying Whitman's body, with the location being 
What exactly? It's not like a slip through a nostril into the brain. It's something much more erotic than that, more visceral. It's the heart and the mind and the fingertips and the feet, but it's centered at the midsection, even lower at the groin, as if sex and drive are as important to the soul and body as thinking or eating. Whitman has this kind of view of his body as needing to expand conceptually at least, to engage itself with the world, a physical engagement, unabashed, erotic if necessary, but one capable of being all people and all land and whatever physicality is there all at once. I'm the caresser of life forever moving, absorbing all to myself and for this song. He starts observing, giving us the vision of everything he sees back and forth throughout time, the workers, the downtrodden, the suffering, the outcasts. I am the man, he will say. I suffered. I was there. The mother condemned for being a witch, the hounded slave. He sees that our poet sees them all, the old-faced infants and the lifted sick. And he goes through these wild visions, these moments of revelation, like a meteor soaring through space, that's his metaphor, or the man being asked questions by a child, he becomes a homeless beggar. All this is in this poem, Song of Myself. He goes through these transformations on this perpetual journey, this place with no chair, no church, no philosophy, in his phrase. And it's all part of being an American, as the stream of people who have been here, and are here and are arriving and making their way, living their life in their old fashion, in their own fashion. He says, I am of old and young, of the foolish as much as the wise, regardless of others, ever regardful of others, maternal as well as paternal, a child as well as a man, stuffed with the stuff that is coarse and stuffed with the stuff that is fine, one of the great nation, the nation of many nations, the smallest the same, and the largest the same, a southerner soon as a northerner, a planter nonchalant and hospitable, down by the Oconee I live, a Yankee bound by my own way, ready for trade, my joints the limberest joints on earth, and the sternest joints on earth, a Kentuckian walking the vale of the Elkhorn in my deerskin leggings, a Louisianian or Georgian, a boatman over lakes or bays or along coasts, a Hoosier, a Badger, a Buckeye, at home on Canadian snowshoes or up in the bush, or with fishermen off Newfoundland, at home in the fleet of ice boats, sailing with the rest and tacking, at home on the hills of Vermont, or in the woods of Maine, or the Texan ranch, comrade of Californians, comrade of free Northwesterners, loving their big proportions, comrade of raftsmen and coalmen, comrade of all who shake hands and welcome to drink and meet, a learner with the simplest a teacher of the thoughtfulest, a novice beginning, yet experient of myriads of seasons. Of every hue and cast am I, of every rank and religion, a farmer, mechanic, artist, gentleman, sailor, Quaker, a prisoner, fancy man, rowdy, lawyer, physician, priest. I resist anything better than my own diversity. I breathe the air but leave plenty after me and am not stuck up and am in my place. 
the moth and the fish eggs are in their place. The suns I see and the suns I cannot see are in their place. The palpable is in its place, and the impalpable is in its place. It's all kind of insane and kind of breathless. It's comprehensive. It's exhaustive. There's philosophy in it. There's theology. He considers death and science and worship ancient and modern and all between ancient and modern. He sees young men bathing, famously, 28 of them, and a lady who arrives who sees them and loves them. And the beards of the young men glistened with wet. It ran from their long hair. You can spend all day in just this poem, Song of Myself, all day and a lifetime, too, marveling at the movement, the imagery, the confident voice, the sheer boldness of it all, the audacity of poetry is here in Song of Myself. You go through the highs and lows with Whitman or with our poet, and then like a symphony, the poem reaches a crescendo and begins to wind down, leaving the reader, the dizzied and dazzled reader, on a note of exhausted excitement for what's ahead. I'll read the last three passages now, 50, 51, and 52. 50. There is that in me. I do not know what it is, but I know it is in me. Wrenched and sweaty, calm and cool, then my body becomes. I sleep. I sleep long. I do not know it. It is without name. It is a word unsaid. It is not in any dictionary, utterance, symbol. Something it swings on more than the earth I swing on. To it, the creation is the friend whose embracing awakes me. Perhaps I might tell more. Outlines, I plead for my brothers and sisters. Do you see, O oh my brothers and sisters? It is not chaos or death. It is form, union, plan. It is eternal life. It is happiness. 51. The past and present wilt, I have filled them, emptied them, and proceed to fill my next fold of the future. Listener up there, hear you. What have you to confide to me? Look in my face while I snuff the sidle of evening. Talk honestly. No one else hears you, and I stay only a minute longer. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I concentrate toward them that are nigh. I wait on the door slab. Who has done his day's work? Who will soonest be through with his supper? Who wishes to walk with me? Will you speak before I am gone? Will you prove already too late? 52. The spotted hawk swoops by and accuses me. He complains of my gab and my loitering. I, too, am not a bit tamed. I, too, am untranslatable. I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. The last scud of day holds back for me. It flings my likeness after the rest, and true as any on the shadowed wilds, it coaxes me to the vapor and the dusk. I depart as air. I shake my white locks at the runaway sun. I effuse my flesh in eddies. 
and drifted in lacy jags. I bequeath myself to the dirt to grow from the grass I love. If you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. You will hardly know who I am or what I mean, but I shall be good health to you nevertheless and filter and fiber your blood. Failing to fetch me at first, keep encouraged. Missing me one place, search another. I stop somewhere, waiting for you. Oh, oh, oh boy, waiting for you, for us, for all of us. How will the us respond? Well, that's going to do it for part two of our look at Walt Whitman. When we do part three, we will hear how the us responded, starting with Ralph Waldo Emerson. We'll hear about the self-help book Whitman wrote, Manly Health and Training. And we'll hear about his themes of the body and democracy. Lots more to unpack there, and we'll go with him to the Civil War in Washington, D.C., where he found the soldiers in this new country of his, the soldiers that were who were suddenly divided, casualties of an embittered nation being torn apart. We'll hear much more of Whitman's poetry, including some of the shorter works, some of those I quite love. And we've only covered one of his six major poems yet. We have five more to go. Lots more Whitman coming up, along with Christina Rossetti. My goodness, have you ever read Goblin Market? Oh, that's good stuff. So there we have it. I can't believe I confessed... That all about that woeful early podcast of mine, the fishstery of literature. It's such an embarrassment now. What a horrendous low point of my career. It did not do well, suffice it to say. It was the only podcast that I know of that has ever received negative downloads. Hmm. More people put it back than actually downloaded it. Got more uploads than downloads. <laughs> That's how badly people hated it. It was awful. I had a few advertisers, city aquariums mostly, and also some seafood restaurants, and I ended up owing them money. I never thought the negative download was possible. I've heard it it caught the folks at Apple and Spotify off guard too. And now when that happens, they call it a jack. Never actually happens, but it's their their horror story, their parade of horribles they tell one another. As in My God, this podcast is so terrible. It could be another Jack. That's J-A-C-K-E, by the way, for those of you keeping track. Track with no E, Jack with one. Speaking of one, a one with no E, that's an on. And on it is we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 